Any Star Wars fans in the house? Anybody? Go ahead. It's all right. Come out. Just admit it. You nerds. Yeah, go over there. That's good. I see two hands over there. And they're, okay, all right. All in. Uh, you give me a woot woot or maybe a I don't know. Um, I remember, if you're like me, when, when the, uh, what in the world? Uh, there's an exorcism going on over here. Uh, we, when, the, when episode seven came out a little while ago, if you're like me, if you're a geek like me, you couldn't just go watch episode seven. You actually had to go back and watch one through six. You know what I'm saying? And, and why do we have to do that? Other than I'm a bachelor with copious amounts of time on my hands, I, I needed the context, right? I needed the perspective. I needed to remember who was that dude and why were they against them and what was going on with the plot. And so you go back and watch those first six episodes so that when you come to the seventh episode, it makes sense. It's in its proper place. And we talked about the fact that we do that when we study the Bible, how necessary context is, that when we look at a word, we got to say, well, what is the sentence surrounding that word? And when we look at a sentence, what's the the phrase or the paragraph surrounding that sentence? And, And what's the book that surrounds that paragraph? And in the same way, each of us have a story. God's writing a story in our lives, but it's so important that we know how our stories fit in with the grand story, with with the greatest story that's ever been told, his story. From creation to eternity, it's a story of God and his people, but we need to know where do we we fit into that story? And just like we said, that puzzle with the the, the puzzle box with the picture on it, we want to know how's our puzzle piece fit in with the rest of the picture so that we can make sense of this thing that we call life. And today, we're going to look at that big picture. It's the most daunting sermon I've ever preached. It's called The Entire Bible in One Sermon, all right? Hope you didn't make lunch plans. Uh, No, we're going to go. I want to let you know, um, before we get into this, the Bible, the Bible is essentially a love story. It's a love story, and and God, we're going to be clear on this, God is the main character, He's the hero. He's the protagonist. A lot of times in my life, I want to make it that, that it's about me, that I'm the main character, that I'm the hero. So if I'm telling the story, I want to be Superman, right? Like that. Look at that. Just, just amazing how seamless that face fits into that body. Um, and yet, you know what? I don't get to be Superman in this story. You know who I am? I'm the damsel in distress, right? I need help. Right? And, and if we're honest, we've got to see ourselves. We've got to know who the main character is and, and who the damsel in distress is. And guess what? The distress, that came from our own foolish, rebellious hearts. We put ourselves in that situation. Let's just keep moving on. Um, we're going to see that this story, the story that we're going to look at, it's a series of promises, a series of promises from God to mankind. And man has a choice. We have a choice to believe those promises or to reject those promises, to depend on God or depend on ourselves. And we're going to see over and over again in this story, man's failure to believe and obey God's promises, but God's grace to step in and intervene. And when we walk through this story, we are going to see Jesus dripping all over it. You ready? Once upon a time, right? or in the beginning. Now, this is real time. This is literal time. This is not a fairy tale that we're going to get into. This actually happened. This is the most real thing that's ever happened. And once upon a time, at the beginning of time, God, who existed eternally before time, who created time, he creates the universe. And in six days, in six days, he finishes creation. 
And on the seventh day, he rests. And he looks around after each day and he goes, whoa, that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. And, and then on the, on the, of course it's good because God is good and everything that God creates is good. So he made good light and good dark. He made good planets and good stars. He made good trees and good animals. But then his magnum opus was mankind. And he takes this dust out of the earth and he breathes life into it. And he forms man and he steps back and goes, wow, that is really good. And then he takes a rib out of Adam and he forms Eve and he goes, man, that's even better, right? Woman is like man 2.0, okay? Y'all win. You look better than we do. God just kept improving. And, and so he's, and, and, and he tells Adam and Eve, I want you to go into the whole world and I want you to be fruitful and multiply, Okay? Make more of yourself. And, and, and Adam and Eve, human beings, were created in God's image in a way that no other part of creation was. You see, God made us to have a special love relationship with him. He created Adam and Eve, and this blows your mind. He makes Adam and Eve, and he wants to walk in the garden with them. He wants to talk with them. He wants to know them. You see, love is doing the best thing for someone, and the best thing that God could do for Adam and Eve was give them a relationship with himself to know him, to worship him, to depend on him, and enjoy him forever. But then, just like in every good story, there's a conflict. And God makes his first promise to man. He goes, you can eat of any tree in the garden except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that tree, you'll die. Death means separation. So if you eat of this tree, you're going to have to be separated from me. We're not going to be walking and talking together any longer. And so Adam and Eve, they have a choice. The first of many choices we're going to see in this story. To trust and depend on God. To eat of the tree of of life and to live with him forever. Or to disobey and not believe God's promises. And say, no, I don't want to let God be God. I want to be God. I want to be my own God. And I'm going to figure out this good and evil thing on my own. And of course we know the story Satan. And we'll talk about him more another day. He comes in the form of a serpent. And he deceives Adam and Eve. And they choose to believe his lies over God's promise. And immediately, sin enters into the world. And Adam and Eve, they realize that they're naked. And they try to cover themselves with these, this fig leaf underwear. And not only is it extremely itchy and uncomfortable, it's also unable to cover their sin and their shame. And so God, who's always faithful to his promises, he curses Adam and Eve. And he drives them out of the garden. And he drives them away from the the tree of life. And this symbolizes the spiritual separation that necessarily came in between an unholy man and holy God. And because they are now disconnected, ripped away from their life source, they will now physically die as well. That's why each one of us experience physical death. And then when they experience that physical death, they will experience eternal banishment. Is that a word? from the presence of God for eternity. They must pay for their sins by death, by separation from him. And now every single human that's born into this world is born of Adam, born into sin, born separated from God. But God, in his grace, he makes them a promise. And he says, one day, one day this deliverer is going to come and he is going to, Satan is going to strike his heel, but then that deliverer is going to crush his head. 
He's going to defeat sin and death. He's going to fix this sin problem. Now, that's it. He doesn't give them any details. He doesn't get into any specifics. And what we're going to see is what we call progressive revelation, which means as the story goes on, he's going to get more specific about who this deliverer is. But for now, he gives them this beautiful picture. And what he does, is he kills this, this good and this innocent animal in their place. And he covers them with the skin of that animal. See, he replaces their attempt at covering their own sin by those fig leaves. And he shows them that death, death is the only payment of sin. He killed that animal in their place. And he shows that only God can cover our sins. So Adam and Eve, they start making babies. They fill the earth with these sinful, rebellious little monsters. And then Cain, we do not get off to a banner start, okay? First two siblings... Cain murders Abel, okay? That's just how we get things going. Um, and because God accepts Abel's faith-based sacrifice, rejects Cain's. Cain comes to God his way, not God's way. So God rejects Cain's uh, offering. But God, once again, he, he graciously intervenes, and he replaces Abel with Seth. And Seth comes in, provided by God, and he says it's going to be through Seth's line that the deliverer is going to come. And now the world is full of these sinful people. And because they are born separated from God, every action, every thought is evil. And so God says, that's it. I'm done. I'm wiping them out. I'm going to send this flood. So God's going to send this flood. But remember, God has promised this coming deliverer. And if he kills everyone, that negates his promise. So he sees Noah, and Noah is the only man on earth who believes God, who depends on God instead of himself. He's still a sinner. But he believes God and his promises. So God tells Noah, I want you to build an ark for you and your family. And I want you to get on that ark. And so they do. And they enter this. And it says, the scripture says, when they get onto the ark, God closes the door. You see, there was only one door. There was only one way. Only one way to be saved from this flood. To enter that door by faith. And Noah and his family do that. And everyone else who did not enter that door died in the flood because of their sin. So now Noah and his family, they survive this flood and they start to repopulate the earth again. But because man is still sinful, they build this huge tower. This tower to show how great they are instead of worshiping God for how great he is. And God is like, uh, uh-uh. And he confuses them by giving them these different languages so they can't understand each other. And he scatters them across the world like he had originally commanded them. So when you call tech support, and you can't understand what they're saying, you can thank the Babel builders, okay? That's them. But God does not forget his promise to deliver mankind from their sins, so he comes to this man named Abram. And he comes to Abram and he says, I want you to leave your home, leave everything you know, and I want you to move to this land, this land I call Canaan. And Abraham believes him, and he goes by faith. He moves his entire family to a strange place he's never been before. And God says, because you believed me, I am about to bless your relocated socks off. Okay? And he goes, I'm an, and so he gives this just list of these blessings toward Abraham. He says, I'm going to make your name great. Check. We're talking about him today, thousands of years later. He also says, um, anybody who messes with you is messing with Superman, all right? They're getting thunder and lightning. And he goes, I am going to make you into this great nation. Um, I, he says, look at the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. 
That's how many, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And, and you're gonna, I'm going to give you this land that I call Canaan. You're going to dwell in it. It's a beautiful land full of milk and honey. Um, and then he says, all the people, and this is the, this is the most beautiful promise. He says, all the people on earth are going to be blessed through you. So, so what he's saying, this is this, this huge hint to say that the, the promised deliverer that we've been watching for, he's going to come through Abraham's offspring. And he's not just going to bless Abraham's offspring, but all the peoples on earth. But here's the problem. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90. And they have no children. Now, I don't mean to pry and get personal, but Chuck and Janice... You guys planning on being more fruitful and multiplying any times? No. Janice is shaking her shoe before I even finished the sentence. Chuck was like, what? But she, mm, 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 mm. No, 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 no. Abraham was older than Pastor Chuck. Sarah is older than Janice, and, and they have no children. But God says this is perfect because I'm about to show you that what I'm going to do is do something that only I can do. Man can't do this. And so he gives Abraham and and Sarah, a son, and they name him Isaac. And then God goes, hey, Abraham, you know that son that I just miraculously gave you? I want you to kill him. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And so Abraham, again, this is the, this is the line that the promised deliverer is supposed to come through. Now you want me to kill him? But you know what Abraham does? He believes God and he obeys God. He goes, God must raise him from the dead. I don't know how this plays out, but I, I know that I'm called to believe God, and so I'm just going to do this. And so he, he takes Isaac up this mountain, and, he, and he's going to kill him. But at the last second, right as he's about to, to thrust this knife into him, God says, wait. And he provides this ram, this substitute ram. And the really cool thing is this ram was caught by its horns in this thorn bush. And the reason that's significant, had it been caught by its skin, it would have been ripped up and torn. It would not have been a perfect substitution but he is, and, and, and it's this perfect sacrifice to die in Isaac's place and to keep the promise of this coming deliverer. So Isaac has a son, and he names him Jacob. This is real-life footage from there. Um, he renames Jacob Israel, which Israel then, of course, becomes the name of this nation that is going to bless all nations through the deliverer. And then Jacob has these 12 sons, and, and these sons, their namesake, become the 12 tribes of this nation of Israel. And specifically, there is one son named Judah, and that's the line that God says the deliverer is going to come through, through the line of Judah. So this family, they wind up up in Egypt due to this famine. They multiply like rabbits. They freak the Egyptians out because of how fast they're growing, and so the Egyptians make them their slaves. But this does not freak God out because God is in control and he has this plan. And he had told Abraham, he'd actually promised him, you're going to be, your people will be slaves in a strange land for 400 years, and then I will rescue them. He is once again showing that what he is going to do in them is something that only God can do. Rescue them in a way that shows this had to be God, because he is the hero. So God, he raises Moses up to lead the people out of Egypt, and then he hardens Pharaoh's heart, the leader of Egypt, he hardens his heart so that he can show off with these ten plagues, to show how great he is. And so the, the grand finale, he says, I'm going to kill every firstborn son in every household except for those who kill an innocent lamb, a lamb without blemish, and they take that blood and they put it on the doorposts of their house. And those who do that, the angel of the Lord will pass over, where we get the name for the feast, they will pass over the home because the lamb took the son's place. 
then God causes Pharaoh to say, let your people go. And he leads them across this divinely parted Red Sea, a people saved out of bondage to display the mercy and the power and the deliverance of God Almighty. Then God, he says to the people of Israel, he says, you're my chosen people. I have set you apart from the rest of the nations. And the reason I've done this is I want you to show the world what it looks like to be set apart. Don't be like the rest of the world. He says, be holy like I am holy. Be a light to this dark world, this sinful world, this Gentile world. The word Gentile just simply means you're not an Israelite. So there's Israel, and then there's the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And so God, he gives the people this set of rules. He calls the law. He gives them 613 commandments to be specific. And he goes, if you obey these, if you keep these perfectly, then you'll be holy like I am holy. And he makes a covenant with them. He goes, if you keep these rules, I will bless you, and you can stay in this land that I promised to Abraham. But if you don't believe these rules then I will curse you and I will lead you out of this land in captivity to other nations. You know what the people say? He goes, do you you agree? It's a covenant. It's a two-way covenant. Are you in? People go, oh yeah, we're in. We'll obey. We'll keep the law. God knew better. We know better. He knew how utterly sinful they were. They're sinful people. They can't keep a perfect law. And God knew that. He actually gave the law. The New Testament says he gave them the law to show them how sinful they were and how much they needed this promised deliverer. We can't cover our own sin. It has to be someone else. And so he sets up this system of sacrifices. And when the Israelites um, sinned, they were to kill these animals as offerings to God and to show that the animal was dying in their place because they weren't able to keep the law. Death was the only payment for sin. Somebody had to die for the sin. And so he also, God commands them to build this tabernacle, which later on, when they move into the promised land, it becomes known as the temple. It's also called the tent of meeting, because this is where God comes and meets with the people. His presence, the Shekinah glory, fills the temple, and then he meets with the people. Um, And there was this room at the back of the tabernacle or temple called the Holy of Holies. And this was a place where only the high priest could go. This man that represented the people. He came in the place of the people. And he would only come once a year into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle this blood that had been sacrificed by an animal onto what they called the mercy seat. Oh, there it is. Onto the mercy seat. And this this symbolized, this showed that they believed that God would not punish them for their sins because there was one who was going to come and and take care of it for them. Again, they still don't know the details, but we're getting more and more revelation. So God, finally, he leads them into the promised land after, side note, of 40 years of wandering around the desert because they failed to believe that God could do what he said he was going to do. And they see the size of these people living in Canaan. They're like, we can't do it. God's like, you guys are killing me. So each, they move into the promised land. And each of the tribes, they get a portion of this land. And Joshua, he leads the people um, who, by faith, they drive out all the other nations that are currently occupying the land in Canaan. And the Israelites live happily ever after, right? Milk, honey, belief, obedience, it's all good. No, 300 years, these knuckleheads continue this vicious cycle where they rebel against God. They worship other gods after everything he's done for them. 
So then God punishes them like he says he was going to. And these other countries, they come in and they inv- invade um, Israel. And, and, then, and then they cry out in repentance to God. And so then God sends these judges, 15 judges in this period, to come and, and help, help deliver them from their oppression. Rinse, repeat, over and over and over again. It's like one of those ugly high school relationships. Fall in love break up, get back together, do like six times before lunch. And it's just like, it's just over and over again. Well, eventually, Israel, it looks around at all these other nations, and they go, hey, wait a second. All these other countries get a king. We want a king. Why don't, why, God, why don't we have a king? And, and this is, again, just a slap in the face to God, who he says, I am your king, and I am your God. But again, hashtag broken record, the sinful people did not trust God. And most of the, and so God relents. He gives them these kings. And most of these kings do not fear God, do not trust God. One notable exception is King David, who we know he's not perfect, but he's a man after God's own heart. He believes God. And he writes these songs called Psalms. And, and many of these songs, they actually sing of and prophesy of this coming deliverer. And there's more information that's given. And one of the things that, that we're told is that the deliverer is going to come from David's line. Now, he's from the tribe of Judah, so it all checks out. And, and God promises that the line of David will rule eternally. It's going to rule forever. And the deliverer who will come is going to establish a kingdom on earth. And he'll rule that kingdom forever. But because of the sinfulness of the kings and, and consequently his people... God being true to his covenant. Remember, obedience is blessing and staying in the land. Disobedience curses in captivity. So the nation, the first thing that happens, they want a king. This kingdom becomes divided. There's this internal war that goes on. And there's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. And then the southern king, which is, kingdom, which is called Judah. That's where we get the word Jews. Jew just comes from the, the, the name Judah. And so along the way, God sends these prophets to warn the people about their disobedience and to remind them about God's promises and his curses, depending on their adherence to the law. And he also wants to give them some more specific information about the coming deliverer. And these prophets start telling us more about where this deliverer is going to be born and what he's going to be like, and they give us some more information. And they also tell them this really cool thing, that there's this new covenant coming. And it's no longer going to be based on their ability to keep the law. Praise the Lord. He's going to write the law on their hearts. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. So that he makes this promise. But like, like you and I, the people did not like to hear this bad news that kept coming their way. And by and large, they reject God's prophets. And so eventually, the Lord being true to his word, he, he sends judgment. And, and first, the kingdom of Israel is taken captive by, Israel, uh, by Assyria. And they're led away. And then about 140 years later, Judah is taken captive by Babylon, and they're led away, just like God had promised. But God, hashtag good broken record, graciously intervenes yet again, and he brings a portion, a remnant of the people back to the promised land, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and the temple that had been destroyed in the captivity process. Then, for 400 years... God is silent. Not a word from him, not a prophet, no angels, nothing. They they get absolutely nothing. Now this doesn't mean that God stops working. Doesn't mean that he's not there. But he doesn't speak to them. And, And then God, first the Greeks and then the Romans come in and they invade 
and they take over Israel and the rest of the known world at that time. It's a Roman world when we re-enter the story 400 years later. And then, heaven's silence is broken by the most peculiar and unlikely but most beautiful of sounds. It's the crying of a baby. But this baby is unlike any human who's ever lived before. He was not born of Adam like every other baby. This baby was fully human, but this baby was also fully God. He was placed into Mary by the Holy Spirit. And because he was fully God, he was fully perfect. He was holy. Just like that Passover lamb, he had no spot, no blemish, because he was not born from Adam like the rest of us. He was not born into sin. He was not born separated from God. He was God. And this baby was named Jesus, and the name means the Lord saves. He had been sent by God. The promised deliverer was finally here. So Jesus grows into a man, and he lives this life without sin. I mean, you and I can't go two minutes without sinning, right? I'm going to sin 12 times before lunch. 33 years, this God-man lives on this earth and lives a perfect life dependent on the Father. He performs miracles. He speaks these wonderful truths. He fulfills all the prophets had foretold about him. He was born in the right place. He was the right guy. He fit all of the prophecies. But his own did not receive him. And the people of Israel, God's people, once again fail to believe God's word, and they reject Jesus. He's come to present this kingdom. He's going to set up this kingdom on earth and drive them away from all their oppressors. But they reject Jesus. They reject his kingdom. They reject his claims to be God, and in fact, they want to kill him because of those claims. And so Jesus is crucified on a cross. Remember we said it's a Roman world? That's the Roman method of torture and execution, which once again, this is not outside God's control. It's, it's, it uses that to line up with several of the prophecies about the way this deliverer would die. And then he's buried and placed into the ground. But you know the story doesn't end there. And three days later, Jesus rises from the grave. And he appears to over 500 of his disciples or Jesus followers before God brings him back up into his presence. But before Jesus left, he told his followers, he said, I want you to go into the world and tell the world this good news. What's the good news? The good news is that what just happened was no accident. This was not outside of God's providence and his plan. This was God showing us the full extent of his love. Because you remember back in in the garden, while the fruit was still on the lips of Adam and Eve, he promised them a deliverer. He he promised one that would come and crush the head of Satan, that would defeat sin and death and provide a way back to God. And he said, he told them, you're going to come from the line of Adam and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. And Jesus was exactly that. He fulfilled every single one of the prophecies. And you know how like a shadow is just merely an object or a form of the object? Jesus is the reality of these Old Testament shadows, of these pictures. See, Jesus is the animal skin that clothed Adam and Eve when they couldn't cover themselves. Jesus was the one door of the ark that we can enter to be saved. Jesus was the blessing that God promised through Abraham to bless every nation. Jesus was the perfect ram substitute that died in the place of Isaac. Jesus was the the spotless lamb whose blood is placed on us so that death 
passes over us and does not take us as its captive. Jesus was the one and only who could obey the law and obeyed it perfectly, becoming our righteousness on behalf of God. And he is the high priest who alone is able to enter the holy of holies, sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat, ripping that veil open so that we can enter into the presence of a holy God made holy because Jesus is holy for us. See, death is the only payment for sin and the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. But none of these sacrificed animals were sufficient for an eternal payment. They were a picture of the one who was to come. Only Jesus, only the one who was fully God and fully man would be an adequate substitute. He is the only way to once again walk with God in the garden to know him and enjoy him forever. And just like the rest of the story, God made a promise to us, and it is our choice, just like Israel's, to believe that promise or to reject that promise. But the story's not finished, is it? God promised through Jesus that he was going to set up this eternal kingdom on earth. And he's a God that always keeps his promises. So what he does is he tells, Jesus is leaving earth, and he tells his followers, I want you to go out into all the world, and I want you to call out a people for my name. That's what the church means, the called out ones. And so this ragtag group of Jesus followers called the church start going out, and they start gathering not just Israelites, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And they bring them, and to make them this one new people called Christ's bride. And it's this beautiful truth, because remember the promise was that through the nation of Israel, all nations on earth would be blessed. Not just Israel, all of us, even the Italians. So Peter, Saul, and then Paul, these other followers, they start spreading the news. They start writing these letters to these churches, explaining this mystery, this thing called the church. And they gather up this bride because one day, and hopefully soon, Jesus comes back. And he's going to set up this kingdom that he had promised to David. And he's going to throw out Satan. And he's going he's to squelch sin and death once and for all. And you and I get to rule and reign with Jesus forever. Are you kidding me? And for those who don't believe that promise, for those who don't believe, it's eternal separation from him. And this time it's not going to be a flood, it's going to be fire. But if we believe God's promise, we get to return to the garden where God had originally intended us to be, to walk with him, to talk with him, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, the faithful promise keeper. You know the coolest thing about this story is we know how it ends. We're in the middle of it, God's already told us. He tells us how this all finishes out. The hero wins, and the damsel in distress is rescued and gets to enjoy the hero for the rest of all time. Romans 15. Paul said, such things were written in the scriptures long ago. Why? To teach us. We need to learn this story. And the scriptures give us, Paul says, hope and encouragement as we patiently wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. Do you have this hope this morning? Do you have this courage-giving belief? His promise has not been fulfilled yet. But will we be like Israel, who reject him, who fail to believe him, and who walk our own way? Or will we, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Paul and David, believe that he's a God who keeps his promises? Where do you fit into this story? It's, it's, it's really, it's a choose-your-own-adventure how, how, how this story ends for you completely depends on what you do with the person of Jesus, the deliverer who has come. May we, like the damsel in distress, throw ourselves on the hero Jesus 
and enjoy him forever. It's the greatest story ever told. Creation to eternity. God and his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us this story. And we can, we can know it, and we can know the, the people, we can know the characters, we can know the names. But God, what I pray is that we would become a people who believe this story and who specifically believe in the deliverer, the hero of this story. Would we be a people who believe your word and to throw ourselves completely on top of Jesus, our perfect substitute, the only way back to you, to enjoy you as God as you had originally created us to be. I pray throughout this series that we would be a people who, are, who love and hunger for your word, to know your story better, to know our place in this story, that you would embolden us to go and tell this story to the world that so desperately needs to know it, to reunite Jew and Gentile into one new people in the name of Jesus for your glory. It's all for your glory, and it's all in your name that we pray and live. Amen.